God is going to gather a remnant and put them together with the leadership whom he chooses, and that will be the final witness to the world, and then the end will come. So with that background, we've been going through Isaiah 40, and I got up to chapter 45 last week. But in 44, he does say again in verse 8, You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? So God has called out people here in this end time to be witnesses that he is God. They have to be converted people that he is working with, and ultimately he's going to bring together a 10% remnant of what was the church of God until recently when it all fell apart uh, as the final witness that he is God. So the Philadelphia era will consist of approximately 10% of what Worldwide Church of God was. And if we are part of that, and I think he's called us to be a part of that, we will be among those who are witnesses as to whom he is. And going down later as a brief review in chapter 44 uh, and 21, he talks about how he is going to blot out our transgressions as a cloud, and that the heavens will sing, for God has done it, and every tree will sing the mountains before God, because he will start glorifying himself in his people, the church. So this is the time that is just ahead of us right now, because it is the time of the two witnesses, as well as the remnant of the church, which will round out a very great witness that God is God. Now, he says that he is God who will frustrate the tokens of the liars, verse 25, and make diviners mad, that turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolish. So much of what is to be revealed in the months and the years ahead are going to make the world pay attention, and they're going to be an astounding thing that occurs. Uh, Much truth is being restored even as we speak. The world does not know where the promised land was. Israel doesn't know. Most of Israel doesn't even know what that they are Israel, or that they comprise Israel, much less where they began. They don't know where Zion and Jerusalem are. They don't know a lot of things that are going to become very astounding to both the church and to the world. And then in verse 26, I want to read the last three verses again because they set the stage for chapter 45. This is the God, the God we're talking about here, that confirms the word of his servant. So he is going to confirm the words that Isaiah is putting forth here. Uh, Here at the end, there will be one who reads these and explains them, and the world does not understand. So that word is going to be confirmed, and performs the counsel of his messengers. So uh, he is going to send more than one, ultimately. Uh, We read about the man from the east who is righteous that he's going to send, which is clearly Zerubbabel from all the scriptures I've seen. Uh, So there will be more than one messenger, ultimately that says to Jerusalem, You shall be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah you shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. I think I quoted Isaiah 58, Jeremiah 9, and I think it's Isaiah 61, and there's many other scriptures we've gone over to show that Jerusalem is desolate and has been for many generations. The cities of Judah are lost and decayed, 
and of those who will keep God's Sabbath and who will obey Him and fast for the right reasons will be the restorers of the breach and of the paths to walk in. So, God is going to do these things, and Jerusalem will be again inhabited, as Zechariah puts it, in its own place. Not in the place that is a false Jerusalem today, but in its own place. Uh, And that Judah will be rebuilt. Now, this same God says to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. So God dried up the Red Sea. He dried up the Jordan River twice. Uh, He is again going to perform that uh, dramatic of miracles to show who he is. So he reiterates that, and he uses that expression uh, over and over. He says the very same thing in Isaiah 51.10 of how he is going to restore and how he is going to open things up. Uh, Revelation 12 even says a flood or an army will come after the church when she flees to Zion and uh, will be lapped up. So he is going to have some very, very dramatic uh, miracles in the future. Uh, And then in that context, in verse 28, he says that says of Cyrus. So there is an individual uh, who is going to perform the work that Cyrus did in the past. Now, we have been through Ezra and Nehemiah, and we saw that after the Babylonian captivity, and make no, no mistake, we today are still within captive of Babylon. We've been brought out of the midst of Babylon, out here into the wilderness and into the country where God is going to gather his remnant. Uh, But we still are under the influence, to one degree or another, of the Babylon that is around us, both in this nation and the whole world for that matter. So Cyrus had replaced Nebuchadnezzar as king of the Babylonian Empire when the uh, the, uh, Medes and Persians took over. So Uh, The Cyrus that was there apparently was the son of the king of Persia and um, Esther. So he knew uh, somewhat of the truth of God. And the man that I fully believe is going to be the Cyrus here in the end time used to listen to Herbert Armstrong many, many years ago, took the plain truth and everything else, and even told me that Herbert Armstrong had been his mentor. Uh, He's backed off on some of that since, but uh, here this Cyrus who commissioned Ezra uh, and Zerubbabel and Joshua to build the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple when they came out of Babylon uh, is used to typify an end-time man who will do the same work that Cyrus did then. So it says, it says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. So he is going to raise up someone who will come to have the mentality to do the things that God wants done. And he's very specific here about what that pleasure of God is. Even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built. Now we know from Daniel 9 that there will be an order, a decree given to build Jerusalem, and that 70 weeks later, uh, the abomination will be set up in the temple. So, Jerusalem will be built in her own place, uh, he says, yet again built in another place, uh, 
and this Cyrus will be involved in seeing to it that that happens. He will say to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now we know from Zechariah 4 that Zerubbabel lays the foundation of the temple, and it says there that his hands will also finish it, even though there apparently is a delay from the time that it's begun until it is finished. And I think that it's speaking in spiritual terms there in Zechariah 4 of laying a foundation for uh, the latter temple after worldwide the former temple has fallen apart. But the indication to me here, just as it is in Haggai, is that the Cyrus will not be involved in building the spiritual temple, obviously, and we'll see that is, has to be true from the context, but would be involved in the building of physical Jerusalem and the physical temple. That's what the original Cyrus did, was provided what was needed to build the temple and then to build the walls of Jerusalem. So here we have someone in the end time who is going to be doing the very same thing. And the man that this is speaking of, uh, and I am, have no doubt in my mind who it is, uh, did tell me at his own house one time, not long after I met him, that uh, Jerusalem and the temple had to be built right here in Iron County, he said. And my jaw almost dropped to my chin, I mean to my chest, uh, to hear him say that when I was familiar with this scripture. Now I know some will get their back up if they hear me talking about who I think this is, but I got a scripture for you I'll read a little later on, so you better think about it before you get too hasty in your judgment or your condemnation. God raises up whomsoever God chooses. You and I do not. So, uh, be careful what you say. He's going to raise up Osiris. That makes it very clear. And he will have a mind to see that Jerusalem is built and the foundation of the temple laid. So, uh, even as in Haggai, where it says it isn't time to build the temple, uh, I've made the point many times that no one who's been part of the truth of God would ever say it isn't time to build a spiritual temple. They'd all agree it is, always is, time to build a spiritual temple. But many of them would balk if you said we need to build a physical temple. So that has to be what Haggai is saying, or God is saying through Haggai, that here at the end time, when the latter temple begins... There is a physical temple that must be built, and most people would say, oh, no, 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 it either doesn't need to be done, or that's for the Jews to do. Well, Christ disfellowshipped the Jews when he was still walking the face of the earth. And he said, I won't have anything to do with you until you accept those whom I have chosen and sent, which was the apostles and the church that has succeeded them. So, uh, they're, they don't understand. They will someday when this all comes to light. Now let's, let's go on and see what God says about this and how this Cyrus will be able to help do the things that he says in verse 28 that he will do. Well, how did the original Cyrus? He had the, uh, the treasury of the Medes and the Persians. He also had the, te- the, vessel, the temple vessels that had come out of the temple and been stolen and taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. They were still there. And Belteshazzar even 
uh, drank from them at a party he held, and he died that night. So they were there, and they were returned uh, to Jerusalem by uh, Ezra, uh, and Zerubbabel and Joshua were, were the main ones, and they were turned over to them. So uh, that's history or prophecy written aforetime. It's history that will become prophecy, is prophecy today that shall be repeated. Let's put it that way. Anyway, chapter 45 then explains what has just been stated would happen. And that is due to happen very, very shortly now. Thus says the Eternal to his anointed, to Cyrus. Now, he already told me about ten years ago that the temple had to be built and Jerusalem built in Iron County, Utah. So it's already been said once. Hasn't been repeated, but it was said. So we're talking about real soon now. So thus says the Eternal to his anointed to Cyrus. So God has chosen and anointed this Cyrus, whomever he is, to do a job. Whose right hand I have strengthened. Uh, in the Hebrew, strengthened instead of holden or held as it is in the King James. So he has appointed someone to do a job and he strengthened his hand. Notice, to subdue nations before him. Now this is going to be a very powerful thing when it happens. Nations will be subdued before that. I will loose the loins of kings... Do you know what that expression means in the King James translation of the Bible? It means they dirty their diapers. Uh, they, they are so fearful, so scared, that they lose bowel and, and uh, urinary control. What is about to happen is going to be so powerful, it is going to scare kings around the world. Okay? To open before him the two leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. So just as he says to the Philadelphia era, I will open a, a door, and it shall not be shut, and I will shut, and it cannot be opened. He tells the church that, the two witnesses, and here he says about this Cyrus, that he will open gates, and nobody can shut them. Nobody can stop what God is saying is going to happen to Jerusalem and to the temple. That's ultimately what this is talking about. He says, I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. Now, why? Because the story of the promised land, the story of Jerusalem, the story of Zion, the story of Israel, the treasures of the temple have all been lost. The knowledge of, the whereabouts of, the treasures of God. Now there are people, archaeologists, crawling all over the Middle East and into Libya in various places that they dream up that the Ark of the Covenant might be or where uh, the temple treasures are. Uh, there are very serious people who are looking very, very diligently for all of these things that have been hidden. They can't find them. 
And I'll guarantee you they won't find them in the Middle East, and they won't find them in Libya. Where they are is where God has hidden them in the original promised land. And we're in it. We're out on the edge of it, right where we're sitting today. So these things are going to happen, and they're going to happen very, very shortly. And you are a few people on the earth who even begin to understand this. So, it is a very crooked path, a very difficult thing to ascertain where these things of God are. God has hidden them carefully. He's never forgotten where they are. But mankind has lost track and does not know. So God is going to take this individual here, and he's going to straighten out the crooked story, the path that leads to these things. And there are gates of brass and bars of iron. In other words, there are severe difficulties in coming to know where the treasures of God are. But God is going to cut those. He's going to break them. He's going to show the way, to show the path. A crooked path it is. And I've been watching it and helping explore it for some years now. And I'll tell you, it has many twists and turns. It is very difficult to discern. So what God is saying here, uh, I have experienced personally. This isn't an easy find. It is very, very difficult. Believe it. So when God says He will straighten out the crooked places and he'll remove the bars and the impediments to finding, uh, he's not kidding. It's true. And all the people of the world since Baba, the Babylonian Empire uh, and the temple that uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel built, since it was destroyed, people have been looking all over the place for these things and cannot find them. I mean, they've spent a lot of money and a lot of man-hours digging and searching all over the Middle East, Jerusalem, all over the so-called Holy Land, and in other places. And they can't find squat. It's not there. They can't find it. So when God says this, He means it exactly as He puts it. <clears throat> this is Scripture. This isn't First Daryl 3.10. Now, what does He say? What is He talking about here? Verse 3. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. So the things that have been hidden, the things that God has caused to be obscured, and the many ways that he has caused the story to be lost so that men cannot find it, are going to be removed, the doors opened, and God is going to reveal the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. Now, he tells us in Haggai uh, that the silver and the gold is his. So, obviously, the latter temple is going to have access to silver and gold. And God says that all along, it's been his. The temple vessels are his. Uh, the King Solomon's mines are his. He knows where they are. <coughs> now, ahead of even gold and silver, which will be needed on the temple, the knowledge of the temples, or the temple treasures, the vessels that were in the temple, will be, in that sense, more important to showing who God is than just silver and gold. 
I mean, somebody just found a Spanish treasure ship that has apparently four to five billion dollars worth of silver, gold, and jewels on it that were being carried from Mexico back to Spain. So that doesn't prove to anybody who God is. It proves that a Spanish ship sunk with a bunch of treasure on it. That's all that proves. But what this is going to prove, as we'll see here in a moment, is that God is God. So I think the records that are there and the temple vessels that are there and the things of God, perhaps even the Ark of the Covenant, who knows, are going to show that there is a God. That's where the proof will lie, not in just some silver and gold or some treasures of the Spanish or whatever that might be found. Now, see here what he says. I'll give you these treasures and riches uh, that you may know that I, the Eternal, which call you by your name, am the God of Israel. So the first one that is going to learn who God is is going to be this Cyrus. Now, that doesn't say he'll be converted. It doesn't say he'll become a true servant of God necessarily. He's a servant or a shepherd of God to do a specific job, just as Nebuchadnezzar was. God used a human being, Nebuchadnezzar, to deal with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And did not at one point uh, Nebuchadnezzar admit that their God was the true God? Did not Pharaoh admit that there was a true God and there is no other God but your God? So there have been Gentile kings in the past uh, who have recognized through what God did with his people who the true God is. Whether they followed him and worshipped him or not was beside the point. So this Cyrus does not know who God is. And that's going to be repeated twice more down here. Three times he says it. I'm going to give you these treasures of darkness and hidden riches that I, the Eternal, which call you by your name, am the God of Israel. This man does not even know his own true name. He's told me that story. And God says it right here. We'll read it in just a moment. Now, let's see. He says, For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, I have even called you. Now, what this Cyrus is going to do is not going to be for his sake. It's going to be for the sake of Jacob and Israel, his elect. Now, he's talking about the church there, because most of Israel in this end time is not the elect of God. Most of physical Israel is contrary to God and is about to be destroyed, with the exception of a little less than 10%, all killed off. So, when it talks about Jacob and Israel, my elect here, he's talking about the church, and he's talking about the 10% remnant that he is going to call out in specific, because they are his witnesses, as described before, and the two who will lead this uh, on the spiritual side are also specifically his witnesses. So, he's speaking here of the church in the end time, as is this whole context. And that's the reason... God is going to cause these treasures and hidden riches to be discovered for the church's sake. Okay? I have even called you by your name. I have surnamed you, though you have not known me. 
So here's a man who will not even really know his origin. Now, the man that I believe this is talking about told me years ago of a story. I think I've reiterated it or said it before, but I might should reiterate it here uh, since I think this is very close. We're getting very near the collapse of uh, our nation uh, financially and militarily. Uh, all these scriptures that we're reading here are very, very close to occurring. In fact, I think I see some of the scriptures we've been reading lately already starting to occur. So we're on a timeline now. We're not just reading about things that are going to happen sometime. We're beginning to see some of them come to pass. So this isn't far away. But this individual told me that in his, I guess it would be probably a great-great-grandfather's great time, uh, his father, uh, the father of this child back in France... Uh, generations back, brought a baby, a male son, to this house and knocked on the door and said, I may be killed. His life was being threatened for some reason. And he handed the baby to this man. Didn't tell him who he was. He just handed the baby and said, Take care of my baby, my son, and if I'm not back in a year, I'm dead, so go ahead and raise him the best you know how. So he must have selected somebody he had some confidence in, one way or another. But he didn't, he didn't know him because he didn't give him his name. Well, when that child uh, grew to adulthood, he abandoned the family that had raised him and joined the French Navy. And he took a different name... He didn't know his didn't know his own name, and he did not know he did know, of course, the name of the people who raised him. But when he went into the navy, he chose a different name, and it is a name of royalty, actually, of minor royalty that he chose. So he does not, going back, understand who his parents were doesn't know his bloodline at all, though he thinks he does, uh, and took a surname like somebody would change their name from Jones to Anderson for whatever reason they chose to do it. Now, that's the story behind the man that I believe is on the verge of finding these treasures. What did God say here? I have surnamed you, though you have not known me. So there was a name change, and he doesn't even know who his ancestors are. Well, God caused a different surname to be put on his family. Now, whether you believe that's the man that I have in mind or not, whoever it is has had a name change, and God has put a name on him that he intended it to be, according to Scripture, <clears throat> and for the sake of the church. So this man is going to be involved with the church of God, whoever he is, okay? Has to be. Because this is all going to accrue to the benefit of Joshua, Zerubbabel, the end-time remnant, and the church to build the temple and to build Jerusalem and to be a final witness of who God is. So they will be in contact with each other, uh, the church and this Cyrus. Verse 5, I am the eternal, and there is none else. 
There's only one God. There is no God beside me. I girded you, though you have not known me. So we're talking about, God says this three times. He says that you might know me, which indicates that he didn't know him. And then twice he says that you have not known me, but you will. So three times God reiterates it. Here's a man who does not know God. May think he does, but he doesn't. There are a lot of so-called Christians on the face of the earth today that think they know God, and they think they're worshiping the true God of creation, but they're actually worshiping Satan by the doctrines that they follow. Christ said that of the Pharisees. They worshiped they knew not what. They worshiped Satan and didn't even know it. They thought they worshiped the God of Abraham. He said, if you're not following my ways, you're not following me, and your father is who you obey. So God makes it very clear. So with this man, whoever he is, God says three times, you don't know me. Whatever you may think, you don't know me. Now why? That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the eternal and there is none else. So an end time type of Cyrus will be shown the treasures and the hidden riches of God. He will be in contact with Jacob, the church, the elect. He will learn who God is through these treasures. And these treasures, whatever they may be, are going to show the whole world from the east to the west, around the world, that God is God. So God is calling an elect people at the end to be the remnant, to be the builders of the latter temple in Jerusalem. He is going to give them the hidden treasures of God, including gold and silver, and including knowledge of God. The temple vessels, probably maps of where ancient Jerusalem and Judah were in the original promised land. How are you going to build up the decayed cities of Judah if you don't even know where they are? So God is going, has got hidden many things that are going to prove that He is God. I will be very surprised if we don't even have the original biblical manuscripts there that He has preserved and hidden. Maybe the tablets of stone. Uh, there will be things there that will shake the world, that will cause kings around the world to mess their pants, if you will. God puts it in those terms. This is going to be an earth-shaking thing. Don't we know that the whole world is going to turn on the two witnesses and spend its time and effort trying to kill them because they represent God and the things of God? And the people of God who are a light on a hill in Zion to show that God can bless His people and can prosper them and bring them peace even in a time of world war and chaos and apocalypse. This is going to be something the world cannot deny, but that they will absolutely hate and try to destroy. And when they kill the two witnesses in the streets of the true Jerusalem, where Christ was truly born, they will have a worldwide party thinking they have finally won. And three days and a half later, they probably will foul their bridges when those two are raised and rise to meet Christ in the air.
So this isn't done in a corner. This isn't just sort of spiritual uh, sop back here or fantasy land. This is the truth of God written in the Bible of things that are about to happen. And we have opportunity to be part of that. So the story is here. Now there are some who don't believe that the man that I think is doing this or will do this could possibly be the one because of things about his personality and beliefs and various things that they see and despise. Let's read on and I'll show you something here in a moment. This is the God, he says. There is none other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. God does whatever he chooses. No one can get in his way. No one can stop him. The choices he makes, he makes. He says, Drop down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth uh, salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Eternal, have created it. So he's in the latter temple. It's going to far outshine what has been before it. And it is going to open up righteousness and salvation. And it's going to come from above and below. From God in heaven and from the things of God that are down below and probably buried beneath the earth at the moment. That are going to come forth and help bring forth the knowledge of salvation and the truth of God. So from above and from below, God says he's going to cause this to happen. And then he says... He gives a warning here. Now, people are going to see what we're talking about in the context, right? What is the context here? It's of God using a carnal man out of this world to do something that will show who God is and will do something for God's people and help them make a powerful witness to the whole world. So then he says... Gives a warning. Verse 9. Woe to him that strives with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. If you're going to strive with something, strive with what's down there. Don't strive with me. Don't fight me. Don't question me. Shall the clay say to him that fashioned it, What are you making? If you're a potter and you have some clay, and you start shaping it into a bowl or whatever you want to make, does the clay have a right to say, I don't want to be a bowl, I want to be a glass, I want to be a plate? No, it's just inert. Compared to the potter, it doesn't have much knowledge, much ability, no capacity. The potter is the one who makes the decisions. That's what this is saying. Compared to God, we are nothing. Even the nations are as a drop in the bucket. So, God fashioned us and formed us out of the earth. We're the clay. He's the potter. And we don't have a right to say to him what he'll do or how he'll do it or who he'll use. In any form or fashion, we accept that he is God. That's the whole point that has to be made to the whole world. And if that can't be made to God's own people, how can it be made to the world? Listen up. Do we question who 
Cyrus will be? If he appears, will we question him? When the two witnesses appear, are we going to question them? God is going to choose whomsoever he wishes. He says one of them was plucked right out of the fire. People won't like that. Woe to him that says to his father, What beget you? Do we have a right, as we are being begotten, to ask our physical father, What are you doing? No, we're just nothing at that point. So, this is a spiritual analogy, obviously. Do we have a right to say to God, What are you doing? What are you making? God has a right, and says it three times, to use somebody that doesn't know him at all. Okay? Are we going to question God's wisdom on that? Or not? Or to the woman. Who's the woman? Galatians 4, Paul makes it clear that Jerusalem above is the mother of us all. We are the church, the Jerusalem from above. So the church is our mother. So do we question the Father in heaven, or do we question the mother of the church that God is directing? This, this, is, this is down and dirty and gritty right here. Do we say to the woman, what have you brought forth? Are we going to question where God leads his church? Are we going to question if the church begins to say, I think this man is Cyrus? Now what if that Cyrus produces? What if we're in a bad attitude already and are not willing to accept whom God chooses? Ninety percent of the church will reject the two witnesses. Hard to believe. With the powerful witness of, uh, of miracles, of signs and wonders with a powerful witness of the hidden treasures of the earth and the riches of God that are buried, two powerful witnesses right there that God is working through those two men and through those who are gathered to them. And yet 90% of the church will deny it. So is God speaking through his hat here when he says, don't question me and what I'm doing and don't question my church whom I'm going to lead? We better listen up. Thus says the Eternal, the Holy One of Israel, His Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons. Ask me what I'm going to do. Well, we've been reading in Isaiah right here in this context exactly what God is going to do. Don't deny what He's doing. Don't question Him and don't question those He works through or what they are directed to do. Ask him concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands, command you me? Are we going to tell God who he should call, who he should choose? We better be careful. Now he reiterates in verse 12, I have made the earth and created man upon it. You're going to question me and what I do with my sons? I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their host have I commanded. He calls us thou worm Jacob a couple of chapters back from here. We already went over. And the few men of Israel. Now, 
Is he just gone off somewhere and forgot the context? Does he remember what he's talking about? Let's read verse 13. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city, and he shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, says the Eternal of hosts. So the one that God has raised up, the Cyrus here, he warns us not to question what he's doing, but that he, in his own righteousness, has raised up this person. The person isn't righteous. He doesn't even know God. Okay? That's made very clear. But God, in his righteousness, has chosen whom he wants to use. He even said, my servant Nebuchadnezzar, did he not, in one place? Nebuchadnezzar was just about as crazy as you can get. He wound up eating grass like a cow for seven years. Do we question that God used Nebuchadnezzar to take Israel captive? Do we question that he used Cyrus once the Medes and Persians took over to bless the Israelites with the temple treasures and all that they needed? It wasn't just the temple treasures. It said he gave them uh, wages and employment for anything they needed. So it was monetary as well as temple vessels. It says the same thing here. I have raised him up, and I will direct his ways. He said he would guide his hand, to strengthen his hand, to do the things that needed to be done. And that this man would do all of God's pleasure. He doesn't even know God yet, but he's still going to do God's pleasure. Do you think God is big enough to take some carnal human being and cause him to do what he wants him to do? I think he can. He shall build my city. Well, he won't do the literal building, but Cyrus of old was given credit for the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem because he provided the means to do it. So he didn't do the work, but he provided the means to do so. It's going to be the same thing now. And he will let go my captives, not price for price nor reward. Did not Cyrus allow Israel to go back to Jerusalem? Will this man be involved in some way in helping us go back to Jerusalem? I'll tell you this. When God began to show me where the promised land was and where Zion was and the different aspects of what we understand today, he didn't show me where Jerusalem was. That was one thing he did not do. I had no clue. It never even crossed my mind that Jerusalem had to be near Zion. It was a blank. And this man told me, Jerusalem's right here in Iron County, Utah, and he showed me the place, and he showed me all the signs, and he showed me where there were lakes on both sides, the former and hinder sea, and petroglyphs, and all kinds of things, to show that that's the place. Now, is he involved in building God's city or not? We may be the church, but we didn't even know where it was supposed to be built. Still don't know the exact location of the specific city walls. But I think they're buried, and there's maps, and there's things that are going to show us exactly what we're doing. God doesn't leave things out. He knows what he's doing. So this individual will be involved in helping us get out of the captivity of Babylon and the Medes and the Persians, just like 
Cyrus did originally. So, I'm not going to question whom God chooses. I, th- I think I already know. And I think I've worked with him for quite a few years. And he has the mind that he even told me just recently, this isn't for me. This is to show who God is. Said it in those words. He hadn't just recently read this either. Although I quoted it to him and showed it to him years ago. So he has the mind to do whatever God wants once he finds out who God is <laughs> and what God wants done. Now, you can like it or not, but it's going to happen. And I'll guarantee you that whoever it is is going to be somebody that you don't put much stock in and wouldn't care for. Because it's somebody that God raises up that doesn't know God. You and I would like it to be a churchman. We'd like it to be somebody that we could respect and that knows God. But it won't be. And isn't. And whether you like him or not doesn't have anything to do with it. God will choose whom God chooses. To lead the church and to lead in finding the the treasures of God. So he has appointed him ahead of time. Goes back several generations, obviously, to change his name and surname him what he wants him to be called, not what his natural lineage was. So that is going to be true of the Cyrus, whether it's the one I'm referring to or not. This, this is scripture. I've seen too much of it. And I believe that I know the individual. And whether you like it or not, it's going to happen. So there. And if I don't know who it is, it'll be somebody else that shows up real, real soon. Anyway, verse 14. Thus says the Eternal, the labor of Egypt and merchandise of Ethiopia and of the Sabaeans, men of stature shall come over to you, and they shall be yours. They shall come after you. In chains they shall come over, and they shall fall down to you, and shall make supplications to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is none else. There is no God. So as a result of what God is going to show with these hidden treasures and riches is going to cause people from foreign lands to come and recognize that this is the true God. (coughs) I suspect that many of these will be uh, part of the remnant of the true church who will recognize suddenly where God is working when he begins to do these signs and wonders and cause these treasures of the temple to come forth. So they'll come and voluntarily submit themselves to work. To do what? Well, what's the church going to be doing? Building the temple? Building Jerusalem. That's the work that will be being done, so these people will be involved in that work. Truly you are a God that hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. So God did what? He allowed Satan to deceive the whole world. He hid himself from man. He even said he turned his face from the church. So God has hidden himself, but he is about to reveal himself. So this scripture is very true. He has been hidden from mankind. But he is about to make his presence known, and he's going to show from the east to the west and around the world who God is. So he has hidden himself. They shall be ashamed and also confounded, all of them. 
So when he reveals himself, it's going to scare people. Now, how are the loins of kings going to be loosed by what God reveals to this Cyrus? They're going to see the things that the Bible talks about revealed. They'll be right there for the whole world to see. And they're going to be ashamed and confounded. They shall go to confusion together that are makers of idols. This could even be people who understood the truth and were in the church, who made idols of wrong leaders, who have made idols of themselves, who have left the truth and followed false doctrine. But Israel shall be saved in the eternal with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. So those who will obey God and who will serve Him in the end time are going to be included as part of the bride of Christ and never be confounded world without end. For thus says the Eternal that created the heavens, God Himself that formed the earth and made it, He has established it, He created it not in vain, He formed it to be inhabited, I am the Eternal and there is none else. So He is going to work salvation on the earth, he is going to have 144,000 first fruits, and then later on in the millennium of the great white throne judgment, he's going to save most of the population of the earth that has ever lived. He made it, the earth, and he made it to be inhabited. So Satan is not going to win. He's going to make one big last-ditch effort. Well, two, actually. One just before Christ returns in the millennium, and one at the end of the millennium when he get, tries again. He'll be allowed that. But it's not going to work. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I have said not to the seed of Jacob, Seek you me in vain. I, the eternal, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. So he says, I'm going to scare, confound, and confuse, and destroy the earth. But you who are following what I have said, you people of Jacob... Uh, you're going to be saved out of it. So verse 20, Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell you and bring them near. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has shown history of what has happened in the past? And who wrote it down in the prophecies of the Bible to show that it's going to happen again? God caused that to be done. And we sit here reading these things that are about to happen, and God's told us ahead of time of them. Who has told it from that time? Well, you're hearing a story here and an understanding that hasn't been told. Nobody knows it. Have not I the eternal? It has to come through God. Men can dream, men can imagine, men can interpret, men can fantasize. But this has to be revealed from God. He is opening up the parables. He's opening up the scriptures. No man can understand. No man can come to him except the Spirit of the Father draw him. You didn't learn the truth on your own, and I didn't. It all had to come from God. So he is the one who's declared it through his uh, servants, the prophets, and he will, again, through his end-time ministry, who will be reading from the prophets. There is no God else beside me. 
a just God and a Savior, there is none beside me. Do you think he's trying to get the point across who he is? <laughs> you know, how many times did he say it? Right here in this context. Over and over and over again. This is going to be a world-shaking thing, brethren, when God reveals his hidden treasures and riches. It is going to shake the world. Look to me, and be you saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return. In other words, this is going to happen. It's not going to be like an echo off the wall. That unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. When God takes charge, you will either bow to God, or you will have your knees broken. They will bend, is what he's saying, either willingly or unwillingly. Surely shall one say, In the eternal have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. So he makes a division here between those who are going to believe what's being talked about and those who will not. And most of the world and most of the church will not, and they're going to be ashamed. In the eternal shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. So, but before this is all said and done, uh, Romans 11.26 says that all Israel shall be saved. Now, Paul may have been quoting from right here when he wrote that, because he knew that when the plan of God is complete, the first fruits from Adam till now will be in the first resurrection. Those who survive the Holocaust here at the end of the age will learn about God in the millennium. And all those who have lived until now, who have died not knowing God, whether they were babies or in a godless society or whatever, are going to come up in that great white throne judgment typified by the eighth day of the feast. And there they will learn about God. And God is going to save most people who have ever lived. He is not a failure. He is a successful father. Now, he may look like a failure here in the next few years when you see nearly all the population of the earth dying. It may look like Satan's winning. But don't you believe a word of it. When God intervenes, he will intervene. And he will save most of Israel and even most of the Gentile world before he's done. And he's going to start right here at the end with signs and wonders through his witnesses the church and through the things that this Cyrus is going to turn up which will astound the world maybe signs and wonders will impress them some but doesn't the book of Revelation say that even the false prophet is going to create great signs and wonders so signs and wonders of themselves are not a sign to the world Now, he says in Zechariah 3 there with Joshua and the men that sit before him that the signs and wonders will be there with the eyes of the seven churches on that. If God starts doing some healing and things of that nature, it will get the attention of the church as big or maybe even bigger lying wonders than God's people do. It'll be a competition. If the two witnesses can bring plagues, if they can stop the rain, and so on. Uh, Those are incredible signs and wonders. 
Is the world going to listen to those? No. They'll hate it. Will they believe and listen to the signs and wonders of the false prophet? They'll eat it up. Why? Because they can't buy and sell without the beast and the false prophet. They won't have money or food to live on unless they worship the beast and the false prophet. God is going to give His church and this Cyrus who controls it probably more gold and more silver and more wealth than the rest of the gold and silver in total on the face of the earth. King Solomon's mines were very, very rich. But God is going to keep that within the hands of this Cyrus and his own church. Now the world will say, if you want to buy and sell, you've got to come to us. But there's going to be such an abundance of wealth here and such an abundance of knowledge unleashed that it's going to make the kings of the earth quake with fear. What would it take to make the Chinese leader quake with fear? What would it take for Vladimir Putin to quake with fear? Is a little church going to do that? I don't think so. What would it take for the President of the United States to absolutely quake in his boots and fill his diaper? Well, he may have underwear, but you know what I mean. We're talking about some major stuff here, brethren. This, this isn't to be denied and it's not done in a corner. If there's anything I can get across, it's let's understand the scope and the power and the might with which Almighty God is going to show who He is. And Satan will still continue to deceive the world because they will not listen to God. And they will nearly all be killed and have to come up in the second resurrection and there be taught the truth when they will have been humbled by apocalypse, famine, pestilence, the sword, and death. That's what it will take to humble the people of this earth so that they will listen to God. Now, we've seen some pretty strong testimony this afternoon of what God is going to do as a witness to us and what He will use His church people to do as a witness that He is God. So these treasures are going to be used for the sake of Jacob, his elect, the end-time church, Philadelphia, under the two witnesses, to show who God is. And we can be part and parcel with that if we will listen to what God says, accept the leadership that he sends both to the church and the Cyrus, whoever he may be. Ninety percent of the church will not approve either choice. So it's up to us. Do we believe what God says here, or do we not? You don't have much time to make a choice, I'll guarantee you that. So let's stop for there today.